proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. I'm your host, Aaron Carr. I am joined by two co-hosts that will be continuing with us for uh, the new podcast as we are kicking off our first episode this week. And with us, we have Zach Fisher and Chris Santola. And Zach, would you share something maybe a little bit meaningful, like which confession you hold to, and then maybe something a little less meaningful? And then, uh, Chris, why don't you piggyback right after him? All right, yeah. Um, my name is Zach. Uh, I would hold to the 1689, so I'm representing all the Baptists out there. So hopefully Baptists are listening, because I'm like the lone wolf in this room. Uh, so I need your guys' support. <laughs> um, something less meaningful uh, would be I do enjoy growing a beard and smoking pipes and cigars, but uh, Chris, Chris's beard is way better than mine. You guys can't see that, so I'm jealous. <laughs> And uh, my name is Chris Santola, and uh, I am the three forms of unity guy here, which is uh, the Canons of Dort, Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, together, they form the three forms of unity. And a uh, lesser known thing about me is, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I am a bearded guy. <laughs> the bearded guy. <laughs> the bearded guy. Our hope in this new podcast format is to begin to really walk through the confessions and begin to dive into some deep ends of the pool regarding doctrine and theology. And of course, I guess we would say theology is the study of God. And, and if you're going to begin talking about doctrine and the study of God, you have to begin first where the catechisms and the confessions begin, which is the uh, doctrine of Scripture. So let's kind of start there and begin to walk through what that means and what that looks like and why did the confessions start there. I guess I want to start today's podcast just by talking a little bit about theology itself. Um, theology is the study of God, and Kelvin says some pretty uh, profound things right at the beginning of the Institutes where he mentions that we can't truly understand ourselves until we know God. And I guess I just wanted to ask you guys, in, in your own perspective, how have you found that statement by Kelvin to be true? You know, I've found what Calvin said to, to ring true just in, uh, in the sense that apart from knowing who God is uh, and how he has revealed himself to us, uh, both in general revelation and in special revelation in his word, that apart from that, I don't think I can understand uh, what life is, uh, what life is intended for, and who I am in the the big picture of all of that. Knowledge of God, as far as how he's revealed himself in Scripture, um, has to be, I think, the foundation before we get to a proper understanding of man, ourselves, you know, the holiness of God, you know, the fallenness of man and the seriousness of, of man's sin doesn't really make sense without grasping the gravity of how holy God is, so. Yeah, and I think as we kind of begin to think about 
the, the study of, of God and the importance it plays in our daily lives, I think all of us would agree, the more you know God, uh, the more you desire to worship Him, right? That's mm-hmm. a natural response. Right. Mm-hmm. And as, and as you think about that, if somebody's going to be on the quest to know God, and obviously the, the confessions themselves want us to know God, their, their desire is to make much of God, it's interesting that each of them, though, start with Scripture as opposed to jumping right into the doctrines of God. And I just guess, why, why do you think that's true? Why do you think that's, that's the, the, the primary basis for all of them? Um, I think that... You know, as far as why the confessions start with the doctrine of Scripture first, um, all the other statements that they'll make about doctrine of God and doctrine of man flow from the authoritative um, revelation of Scripture itself, you know. So they start with the doctrine of Scripture, that it's self-authenticating, um, there's, there's no higher authority, it doesn't need to be affirmed by a church or a council, um, it's authoritative in itself, so all other theology flows from the authority of Scripture. No, really, uh, I, I would agree with everything Zach just said, uh, that it, it is the, the, the starting point for all of it, that apart from Scripture, apart from its revelation, its authority, uh, that we really can't understand who God is apart from it. And so it's, it's logical that that's the place that we would start when uh, we're going to discuss who God is. What role does general revelation play in our understanding of God and in, in why is then special revelation so necessary? Uh, when you say, like, our understanding, you mean just mankind in general? Sure, yeah. Um, well, you know, I th- I'm assuming it's the first chunk in everyone's confession, but in the 1689, it'll say things like, um, general re- revelation serves to uh, give evidence of God, but it's not sufficient for salvation. Um, so it leaves, it's able to leave people without excuse, you know? Um, so it's it's sufficient to give evidence for God and to leave people um, really with no reason to not know God. Uh, but as far as the special revelation being necessary in Scripture, that's what contains all that's necessary for Christian living, um, for salvation, um, things like that. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. And ironically, in uh, the Westminster Confession, my confession, it says exactly the same thing. <laughs> it's almost like it was plagiarized or something. <laughs> uh, that's what yeah, I was thinking. Right. I, I know mine was 16, right. 1646, right. so I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, 1677 and then reissued in 1689, so I'm a, I'm a few years behind you. All right, so you're the one who plagiarized. <laughs> right. But it is interesting. This is what it says. It says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. And so obviously there is this heavy emphasis placed upon the importance of God speaking. And it's interesting to me that as you study the scriptures, there's only two times where you see God breathed out, right? Uh, God breathed out his breath when he created man, which is the perfect image bearer uh, in creation. He was given a a place of dignity and responsibility to be that image bearer, to be that example. Um, But obviously the fall uh, marred that, uh, brought, brought sin into the world. And then the second time we see God's breath involved is Scripture itself. And, of course, we know that faith cometh by hearing, hearing the Word of God. And so there is this great significance that Scripture has 
if we are to truly first understand salvation and our need of, 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 of a Savior and specifically who that Savior is and what He's come to do, but then even moving forward on that to understand deeper in our relationship uh, who God is and, and, and his, his attributes, his, his personhood. And it's interesting when you begin to study the Scriptures how the Scriptures always seem to draw us back to God. And I, I just want to let you guys speak to that a little bit in, in your own experience as you have studied Scripture and how it's constantly drawn you into worship and in awe of who God is. Yeah, I think when we look at Scripture and when we look at that uh, special revelation of who God is, uh, you know, the Belgic Confession would put it uh, in Article 2 that God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word. Uh, as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. And so as we come to God's Word, and uh, you know, the more that we're always taking in from it, because it really does seem to be inexhaustible, uh, you know, the more and more we study it over the years, it, it just continues to broaden and expand, and uh, you know, it, it continues to reveal to us a, a bigger, fuller picture of who God is, of uh, who Christ is, of all that he's done for us, and all he is for us. And I always tell people, you know, you can't love somebody that you don't know. And as God continues to, uh, to open our hearts by the power of his Spirit to himself through the Word, it is constantly giving us more to love. It's constantly igniting a greater love for God within us. Yeah, um, the only thing I would add to that, too, is keeping that in mind that God is the central character of Scripture really guards against um, trying to find ourselves in every, you know, Bible verse or every passage. Um, I, I think I think it was, I'm sure more people have said it besides Matt Chandler, but I heard Matt Chandler say one time, just the Bible's not about you. <laughs> You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. keep, keeping that in mind, that the entire uh, message of Scripture is, is God revealing himself to man, ultimately in, in Christ, um, is really just a safeguard against reading things, just trying to find, here's my verse for the day, here's how it's going to apply to me today. Um, you can, you know, it's easy to become small-minded that way and kind of man-focused, I think. I've even found that uh, the, the longer I have been in Christ, the more I have devoted myself to understanding his word, that the more I've moved away from that type of uh, perspective, that sort of man-centered, you know, I'm coming to this in, in kind of a, a, a self-centered devotional kind of way of, you know, how is this going to speak to me? How, you know, where am I in all of this? And simply coming to it to see God. If really in understanding Chandler, uh, his statement there of that the Bible's not about you. I'm not trying to look and find myself in this. I'm looking for something beyond myself. I don't want to look in the mirror. I want to behold the splendor of God as he reveals himself in his word. And I think that really is the only right way to, to understand Scripture. I think when we come to it and try and see ourselves in it in that kind of a way, um, because obviously we do see uh, Scripture speak to us concerning ourselves— but, uh, but when we're coming to it in that way of, of always seeing it as being about us, uh, I think we end up tending to distort the message of the Bible. 
I would agree with that. Um, it, that was put so well. I feel like the little thug life glasses need to like float across like a screen and <laughs> land right on your face right now. <laughs> That's great. It, it, oh, we, we shouldn't be shocked by this, right? Because one of the five solas is that everything is to be focused on the fact that it's about the glory of God. Right. And yet I think we live in, in such a me-centered society uh, J.I. Packer talks about in his book, Knowing God, our society is filled where we make God small and man is big. And we think that really the reason the Bible's written is, uh, is about us. The reason we think uh, God created the world is, is for us. You know, it, everything is us, us, us. And it flies in the face of the very uh, framework in which the Reformers understood. And even pre-Reformers, you go back to the Old and New Testament saints, and, and they understood that it wasn't simply about them. It was about God. And Scripture seems to just, you know, just to uh, accentuate that over again and over again and over again as you read the pages. I mean, you read a book like Job, and you just got to kind of stand there in awe and go, it's not about Job. It's, this is a message about God. Uh, the same thing even about the book of Jonah. You, you read it, and you realize this isn't just about Jonah. This is about God and God's love, God's mercy. And, 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 and you begin to fall in love with this God that's described there, and, and just you're in awe of him in realizing that he would send his own son into the world for his church. is just it's, it's jaw-dropping, you know? I think even uh, at times when I've taught on the doctrines of grace— that this is one of the issues that is kind of a presuppositional issue as people approach the Scripture, that they have a hard time understanding certain teachings of the Bible just because we come naturally with such a, an anthrocentric type of presupposition uh, in the way we read the Bible that when we see God do certain things— they just don't make sense to us because we're thinking, well, I, I don't understand why God would do that. I mean, <laughs> you know, we're amazing. <laughs> what, you know, what, why would that be the case? And, and so it, it really almost will uh, act as a barrier to rightly understanding God's revelation in his word. Yeah, I think, I think the basic assumption that that we're all basically good, you know, that man is basically yes. good is, is kind of what plays into that. And then you hear about God uh, choosing, you know, Israel and not the other nations, or you hear about God electing people, and it really is offensive, to, you know, fl fleshly speaking, it's offensive to us just because I think that's kind of seeped into our tradition, just assuming, well, we're basically good, so we deserve God to treat us well, um, things like that. But does, right. doesn't this even creep into our view of heaven and and, and you know, heaven's a waiting place. It's not the final destination. We have the new heavens, the new earth. And, and yet, when people talk about the hereafter, they talk about golf. You know, they, they talk about all these, all these people they're going to get to see. <laughs> and they're missing the point that I think heaven is really about the knowledge of God. It's about worship. Uh, when you read Revelation, what are the people doing around the throne? They're worshiping. Why? Because they're knowing more and more and more about God. And I don't think that'll ever end because God's revelation is ongoing. And, and, and as he's communicating to us, we're learning and we're learning and, and, and our hearts are just in awe of him. And it really, it, 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 it breaks you in a sense of, how can I be prideful? How can I be so self-centered? How can I be um, 
so about me when I realized the Bible is so about God. And that, that contrast is just so evident. Yeah, I think, I think with heaven, a lot of times we're tempted to feel, well, we're seriously going to be there forever, worshiping, like, I'm going to get burned out, that's going to be old, that's going to be boring. <laughs> like, we, we've all felt that, like, whether we want to admit that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just speaks to our, again, just like our fleshly nature, just assuming, this, you know, I have to be the center of something. You know what I mean? Like, this has to be about me in some, in some way. But I think, you know, a proper view of heaven would be, like you said, Aaron, it's the focus is God. Uh, it won't be boring because it really is about him fully revealed and experiencing him uh, clearly, you know, forever. Yeah, I mean, it's it, John 17 make, makes this very clear point for us, right? When you look at John 17, it, it basically says uh, knowing Christ is eternal life. And as you begin to wrestle through that in, 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 in what does it mean to know him? What, what does it really mean to be intimate with God? And we, we look at the, uh, the, the sexual aspect of marriage, and what word is always used? Knowing. And it's this idea of intimacy. There's a lot of people who think they know God. They have them all summed up. He fits in their neat little box. But they're not the ones going to Scripture. They're not the ones really wrestling with what the Scripture has to say and declare of who this God is. It's, it's based upon their own reasoning, their own preferences, and ultimately, they're going to be shocked, I think, at the, at the last day when, yeah. they, when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And what do you mean? You know, right. as Scripture says, I cast out demons in your name. I never knew you. Depart from me. And I think that's where we have to come back to the fact that if we really want to know God, we need to go to the revelation he's provided and begin to study him as he's revealed himself rather than our own preferences. Yeah, I, I think keeping in mind that uh, there's probably dangers, you know, on both extremes. You know, one would be uh, viewing viewing the knowledge of God as not experiential at all, where it's just dry knowledge. I just read the Bible, I memorize his verses, I understand facts about God um, with, with no experience, and, and that's not good either. But then the other side, like you're pointing out, Aaron, is people that um, feel like they're experiencing God apart from what he's revealed in Scripture, and that would equally be problematic. I think that there's two two kind of sides to that. I mean, one, in the world, you've got the whole kind of uh, pluralistic uh, subjectivism where you've got people, you know, the the typical analogy is the whole blind man and the elephant thing, um, where you have, you know, all these different, you know, blind men that come up to the elephant and they're each grabbing the different part of it and thinking, you know, one grabs the leg and it's like a tree and the other grabs the tail and, uh, you know, it's like something else. And so and the whole idea being, well, everyone just kind of has some little bit of a piece of an idea of who God is. And there's a few different responses to that. And most of them I've seen have been good. But one of them I like the best is simply that uh, the problem is that what happens if the elephant speaks and says, I'm an elephant <laughs> and this this is who I am? And I think that's the problem from that type of a, a worldly perspective, is they're neglecting the fact that uh, that the elephant speaks and that God has spoken to us in His Word and said, "This is who I am," and revealed Himself to us in His Word. But from the other side of that, within the church amongst believers, that there is that kind of uh, experience-driven sort of uh, using really what would be an unbiblical concept of love, 
that, that people would just want to bask in the, quote, love of God without having any knowledge of God. And it comes back to what I had said before. You can't love someone you don't know. And if there's going to be a, a genuine love, there has to be a genuine knowledge and that's where the revelation of God in Scripture, I think, is so key in that. Well, it, it comes back to that John 17, verse 3 verse that I was referring to, and it says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It, you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 15, and Paul's talking to Timothy, and he reminds them it's the Scriptures that, that made you aware of the way of salvation. They're... they're and then you come back to that. God has provided a way, and in that, a way to know Him, a way to have relationship with Him, a way to be intimate with Him, and yet people want to come every other uh, back door, side gate, whatever, whatever wall they can jump to try to get in, and it's not going to end up well for them. And yet we look in the church, and how many churches today aren't preaching the Word? They're, they're giving people what they're hungering for, this man-centered theology, and all the while, people are not, you know, knowing God less and less and less, and should we be surprised that, you know, that, that whole, whole generations are growing up not really knowing Christ, not knowing, not knowing God, and it's, it's sad, but we're seeing churches close, we're seeing uh, mission uh, misplaced and, and dropped, <laughs> and ultimately um, the need for mission and is, is ever greater, but it starts with people opening the scriptures and, and knowing who God is, right? Right. Why, why do Absolutely. You think, why do you think there's a, a lack of that? Like, what, is, what, what do you think is the hesitancy of people to um, turn to the scriptures to see God you know, uh, revealed as opposed to, um, or, or I guess I should say, why do more people just gravitate toward like an inward feeling? What do you think is the, is the setback, why they're, they're, not, they're more reluctant, reluctant to open the Bible? Because of sin, right, Chris? Yeah. If I open the Bible, I'm confronted immediately that my standard and God's standard are different. And uh, my grandma used to have a saying. She says, "You know, you know why it's always dark in a bar because bad things happen there, yeah. right?" Now, <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if she was always right or whatever, but you know, the, the point being that her view was that that they didn't want to, they don't want people don't want their sin to be exposed. People don't want to see who they really are, and so rather than opening the scriptures and really discussing the God of the Bible and his standards and his expectations, we make a God of our own image that's palatable, acceptable, and we can pull him out when we want, um, like a genie. <laughs> we can use him to our advantage. Uh, he's our lucky charm on our keychain, but he's not going to expect anything from us, and I think that's really right. why uh, the church has made that turn. See, and I think outside of God's Word, we, uh, apart from God's Word, we tend to make God in our mind basically a bigger version of ourselves. Well, what does God think about that? Well, pretty much what I think about that, you know? Right, <laughs> and, right. uh, and then that, God that looks tends exactly be, like you. <laughs> which is right. just basic idolatry, um, you know, forming a God in our own likeness. And I think that's why as people come to the Bible— uh, either they are they don't want to read the Bible to to f see who God is because they're just comfortable with their own version of God, um, or if they are coming to the Bible, 
they'll attempt to twist it, and they really want to move away from its uh, authoritative nature uh, and more or less cherry-pick verses that are going to fit that preconceived idea of who they want God to be. I mean, doesn't all this come back to the garden and, you know, the, the old adage, the, the, um, the, the Satan asking the woman, did God really say? And that skepticism of the Bible that, eh, you know, I take some of it, you know, Thomas Jefferson approach, I'll, I'll cut the things out I don't like. And ultimately, that's satanic. It's a satanic attack on the Word of God, and ultimately it creates delusion in people's minds that they don't have to take it all. They can just take bits and pieces, and in the end, what they have is not a true God, but a false God. It's not the living God. It's it's a dead God, and it's a no God at all, and yet they're willing to live their lives thinking that they're all right, and then they have churches and pastors and leadership that's supporting that by not preaching the Word, not confronting them with the truth and the reality of who God is and what He's commanded. Yeah, I think that stems from um, confusion about has God really spoken, like definitively, you know, uh, where it's not changing. Here it is, it's written down. Here's what God says about Himself. I think a lot of people, even even genuine Christians, I think sometimes don't fully grasp that God has already spoken, and there are things we can know about God. You know, there are we can't know everything right now, um, but there are some things we don't have to question and wonder. We can genuinely learn about Him through His Word definitively. You know, it's not up in the air. What, what does He think about this? What does He think about this? We can turn to the to the Word, different scriptures, and understand He has spoken about this. Let's let's kind of direct the question a little bit the other way then. How how do you guys engage with people in your cultures? with the word drawing them back to what God says when they basically don't want to hear it? Um, as far as uh, just younger believers, you know, when I'm teaching or trying to maybe counsel with somebody who's questioning, um, I don't know, really anything about God, any kind of question, I just try to instill confidence in them in what the Bible has said or what the Bible says about something so they don't have to wonder you know, um, is this for sure? Is this just Zach's opinion? Uh, who else can I go to and get, you know, get a second opinion type thing? And obviously some things are up for debate, but we can go to the scriptures and definitively draw conclusions about God, about how we should live. And so I try to instill that in people. Um, and obviously that applies to believers. I don't know if Chris wants to add something maybe about when he's engaging with unbelievers even. Yeah. When I, uh, address this kind of an issue. Uh, how do I interact with people to help instill that kind of confidence in the Word? Um, you know, usually it, it, it's as simple as just getting into the Word itself. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times people will tend to just assume things about the Bible. I mean, how many different little cliche things do you hear all the time you know, amongst Christians that you think to yourself, that's actually not really in the Bible. Right. <laughs> God helps those <laughs> but, who help uh, themselves. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, stuff like that. And it's a matter of just getting people back to the Word. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the, the fundamental issues within local churches in our particular culture is getting back to actually trusting in the power of God to minister 
to people through the word, through the preached word, the taught word. Um, you know, as you look throughout Scripture, you look through the book of Acts and the New Testament, I mean, all ministry is being based upon the Word of God. And you find statements spoken by the apostles, like, uh, you know, and the Word of God increased. Um, you know, I think that's something that has been kind of lost largely within our Christian culture. And we've placed our faith and our trust to do ministry in so many other things and other programs and strategies when the New Testament really seemed to have a much more simple approach, that it was about God's Word and the power of God to work through that. Um, and so as I go about ministering to people, I really try and keep it very simple. Uh, and sometimes you have to do a bit of apologetic work and talk about you know, the, the origin and the nature of Scripture and its authority and how do we know these things? How is it self-authenticating? Um, you know, we actually just had a, one of our first classes at Oasis on this this week uh, where we were talking about that very thing. And so I think that that is an area that's very helpful to people is to just come back to those basics of what is this book, the Bible, and, uh, and, and how are we to understand this? What is it? Um, I think, as strange as it seems, that that seems to be something that's kind of been lost within the Church. It's, it's interesting to me that the second um, point that the, the Westminster Confession makes, after it makes this statement about the importance of, of Scripture, is then it defines what is Scripture. And I think that's an important thing for our culture as well, is, you know, it lists the 66 books. Old Testament, New Testament, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New, here they are, and therefore let this dictate to you who God is and what God expects. And as you begin to do that, and I think we have an authority issue, right, in our society where everyone believes they're an authority and therefore everybody's uh, opinion, whether it's on Twitter or, or Snapchat or whatever, is, is of equal footing with Scripture. And the confession would say no, that these 66 books are the definitive authority of what it means if you're going to pursue the knowledge of God. And I, I think we got to come back to that. And so, Chris, I like what you're saying, that we don't have a, a high enough respect for the Word of God that, as the New Testament clearly articulates, that where the Word of God increased, so did you know conversion and, and multiplication increase. And I think it's because we don't really think it has the authority and it has the uh, power that it says it has. And we, and we have to challenge ourselves on that, because if we really believe that, we're going to go there, we're going to study it, and, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be better worshipers in the end. Yeah, I think part of it has to do with the idea that we need to wrap our minds around that Scripture is something we receive. You know, it's not something that... Uh, people say, how did you get the Bible? Well, the church picked this book, this book. How do we know they didn't make a mistake? And just to go with what the 1689 would say, it's the chapter 1, section uh, 4. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the Word of God. So it's something that we recognize as Scripture by nature. 
it's not a list of, well, maybe this book didn't make it in, maybe this one did, and so there's room for error. There's not room for error because we simply receive it. And that's something I try to stress when I'm teaching, um, if questions like that come up, you know, how do we know that this book is in the Bible? Um, I try to go to that part of the confession and stress, we just, we, we have received scripture from God, you know, as opposed to uh, this person thinks this one should be there and this person doesn't. Zach, do you think there's a, a danger, though, in, in, in us doing that at times? We, we quote the confession, and how do we make sure that we're, we're, we're showing that Scripture is the foundation, but the confession, if, in a sense, is our guardrails? I mean, how, how do you make sure that you're making that connection for... Uh, I usually try to explain, like, um, I'm assuming most versions of the confessions we have have footnotes at the bottom, like, where are they basing this, you know, statement about scripture from, and I usually not only quote from the confession, but I'll read the passages that that doctrine is uh, derived from, so they understand um, any authority that I'm going to give you from the confession isn't because of the confession and because a bunch of Baptists back in 1689 said, hey, here's what we, here's what we think. They really stole it from Presbyterians. Who stole it from, I'll give you that, okay? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> so it's not, about, it's not about these Christians throughout history have just thought this. It's rooted in the authority of the Scriptures, and it goes back to that's why the confessions start with the doctrine of Scripture. So the statements that are true in the confessions are true because Scripture says so. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Chris, what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm thinking here, uh, Article 5 of the Belgic Confession affirms the same thing, you know, starts off, we receive all these books, and uh, and these only as holy and canonical uh, for the regulating founding and establishing of our faith, um, that nowhere did the Church decide, okay, these are the books that are going to be in the Bible. Uh, that these things were received, they were understood to have been God-breathed uh, and given to the Church for its life. And so um, as I approach the, the whole issue of the authority of Scripture, I mean, even the, the Confession, Belgic Confession itself, you know, again, starts off with the authority of Scripture, because what it's going to go on to lay out is a case for the Reformed faith— that is laid forth in Scripture, that that is the final authority. And uh, I think that that's something that, again, ha has probably been challenging for this generation, because we do have an issue with authority. Um, you know, I think people in general throughout history have not wanted to be—have uh, not wanted people telling them what to do. But uh, it definitely is something of a challenge, and I think when we come to the Reformed confessions, that we don't want to just point back to them as an end in and of themselves, but to be able to show historically throughout the ages, uh, believers in Jesus have looked to the Scriptures and understood these things throughout the ages— um, that this isn't just somebody coming up with some off-the-wall idea, but that the Lord's Church has affirmed these things through, throughout time, and to show that there is some safety in that, that we're not just coming up with something <laughs> kind of off the cuff right. that, uh, that really no Christian in history has ever come up with before. How, how would you guys—I'm um, sure you guys have gotten questions— 
regarding, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit still speaking to people today, and, and guys like us, we're always going back, well, he's spoken already, it's in the Scripture, it's in the Scripture. How do you guys answer people who, who think that that just sounds dry, like you're just pointing me to a book, um, and how do we make sure that we're not pretending that the Holy Spirit isn't involved in illuminating the Scriptures as we read them, that he's still active, he's still working, speaking to people through the Word? How do you guys deal with that? One of the things I like to draw people's attention to um, is Calvin was known as almost an apostle of the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> I mean, he constantly was, was, was focusing in his works on the importance of the Holy Spirit, whether it was the conversion, whether it was in the enlightening, whether it was the empowering. The Holy Spirit is as active today. You know, uh, and, and it was very clear when Jesus says, it's good that I go so that the mm -hmm. Comforter can come. So obviously, the Holy Spirit has a very predominant role. But what, what gets scary is when people want to dance outside those guardrails that God has provided through His revealed Word yeah. and say, but there's so much more, and God has said to me. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, when a prophet said something, if it didn't <laughs> match up with Scripture, yeah. or if it did not happen... He was going to be stoned, you know. So I guess the question today is, where are our stones, right? Right. You know, <laughs> and 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 I think we have to kind of bring people back to this that it's not a free for all. You can't just uh, say whatever you want because there are boundaries, and the scripture are the boundaries, and therefore I think the Holy Spirit is using the word to empower, to convict, to to draw near. Um, in 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 in. That's the focus, I think, sometimes that's lost in all this discussion about whether or not um, uh, the Holy Spirit still, still is, is active and, and, and involved. What are your thoughts, Chris? Well, you know, I'm fond of saying that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are tools to build with, not toys to play with. And uh, I think as you look at the New Testament in particular, and you see the Spirit of God working and building the church, that there were at times and just particular uh, manifestations of spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit that were working in a very specific way uh, in order to build the church at that time. Um, you know, I always look at Acts chapter 2, you have all these people gathered from all these different areas, and what does the Spirit of God do? Uh, comes as tongues of fire, people are speaking in different languages, and the Spirit of God uses that there in that way in, in order to to reach all of these people from these different places, and, and probably even in a, a, a an overarching kind of a uh, meta-narrative kind of uh, sense, uh, you see almost the reversal of Babel going on. And, and so uh, kind of in a redemptive historical sense, what uh, happened there because of man's sin is being reversed because of the work of Christ. And so there's no other thing maybe going on there in some of that. But I think that the Spirit, as his word says, you know, he, uh, gives gifts for the common good. Um, he gives them for the, the building up, the edification of the church, and that it, it's something that often gets, I think, uh, we as Reformed people uh, sometimes kind of get harped on a little bit, like, well, you guys are kind of against the moving of the Holy Spirit, and it's not that, it's that we want to see all of these things done in accordance with God's Word, and not simply 
just seeing some type of supernatural uh, thing taking place. It's interesting because one of the things sometimes we do see is we see abuse on the other side where people will take a scripture and this is the only way it should be interpreted. Everybody better fall in line. And I came out of a background, you know, that had that had some glimmering uh, aspects of that. And that really can begin to uh, do the the exact uh, same harm, but in, a, in an opposite direction. And it's interesting, the Confession even deals with that. In, in um, the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 1, uh, 9, it says, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And of course, we all know that, the Scripture needs to uh, interpret itself. But it goes on, it says, and therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And so we obviously understand that the, the Scripture has a clear, one clear message, and it, and, it, it, and it is a message about who God is, about what He's come to do. Um, it is about His glory. But it's interesting that we, we understand that there's a fuller sense. And sometimes we have to keep digging. And I think a lot of people want to say, I got it all together, and they start pointing fingers, and they start getting in each other's junk, and, and it, it ends up, they, they, you know, the old adage, they major in the minors, mm-hmm. and they start using the Bible to beat each other up when they're still missing the big purpose, which is that it isn't about you, and it's not about me, it's about God, and what is it saying about Him? And is that you guys? You guys resonate with that at all? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and that's how you get people. That's how you get some people uh, just throwing scripture verses back and forth, and then it, it becomes apparent. Oh well, now there's contradictions because the Calvinists have their verses, and then the Arminians have their verses. And then if you're just throwing scripture back and forth, someone listening in on that conversation is going to think, well, this this book is full of contradictions. You know, without with without focusing on the overarching scope of scripture. I guess uh, to, to wrap up uh, today's discussion, kind of looking at our closing remarks, um, considering the doctrine of God, which we're going to be hitting here soon, and moving moving through that, how, what role have we stated today that the Scripture plays in all of that? Is our study of God, our doctrine of man, our doctrine of salvation, what kind of sum up for us, you know, as, as, as concisely as you guys can, what we're saying to our listeners that we're, we're trying to communicate about the doctrine of Scripture. Um, you know, we kind of mentioned it at the outset of this episode, basically that all other doctrine finds its roots in Scripture, Scripture being authoritative, Scripture being self-authenticating. So I would just stress with people... Um, any confidence that you have in, in your knowledge of God or the relationship you think you have with God, um, you know, attributes of God that you, you feel that you understand or experiences you have need to be rooted in what he's revealed in his word in Scripture because that's the only infallible rule for such, for such things, you know? And I would agree uh, wholeheartedly with that and just say I, I think that's what we're really trying to get at is that the Scripture is the infallible source uh, it is the place we go to discover who God is, who we are, and to to learn from God about those things. Um, that it is the only 
authoritative rule for Christian faith and practice. Yes and amen to both of that, <laughs> right? Um, I guess to our listeners, thanks for hanging in with us through our first podcast. Uh, we're excited about this new format and walking through the confessions together, and hopefully you've been blessed by the things we've had to share. Um, I thank Zach in bringing the 1689 perspective, uh, and uh, Chris for bringing our three forms of unity uh, on board, and of course I'm going to try to uh, just... Uh, do everything I can to convert you both to the <laughs> s- to 1646. So uh, <laughs> hang in there, everybody. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com. And be sure to like our Facebook page.